0: Even though people of color are overrepresented in the mandatory minimum charging space, the people who are charged with second offense OUI for alcohol are overwhelmingly white. And we're seeing a lot of leniency and people thinking critically about what other kinds of solutions will address the underlying public safety concern without all the negative externalities that are being generated by incarceration.
1: Hi, I'm Clémentine Van I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Félix Owuzu is a doctoral candidate in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, a research fellow at Harvard Law School's Criminal Justice Policy Program, a fellow at the Lab at DC, and a data scientist at the Metropolitan Police Department. He studies the application of law and bureaucratic processes in law enforcement agencies and their impacts across race and class. Recently, he was part of the team of researchers from the Criminal Justice Policy Program that published a report to the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts on racial disparities in the U.S. criminal system. Hi, Felix. Welcome.
0: Hello. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Uh, Thank you so much for being here with me today. So um, I'm really uh, happy we can talk about your study that has been published in a context of heightened discussion on racism in America and beyond. Can you tell us a bit more about why it is important to document racial disparities in the criminal system to better understand the roots of systemic racism in the U.S.?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, So I think the first thing that indicates how important this can be to the process is that this analysis was specifically requested, right? So the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court commissioned this analysis of racial disparities in the criminal justice pipeline because there was a general understanding based on history and past research that there's substantial racial disparities when you look at incarcerated people in Massachusetts and nationwide. Um, But even there was evidence that Massachusetts, which tends to think of itself as pretty liberal and progressive was actually worse than average even compared to other American states. Um, There were, I think black people were eight times more likely to be incarcerated and Hispanic people were five times more likely to be incarcerated than white people based on previous analysis. And that was for Hispanics in particular, it's actually the worst. Um, in, the, in the country for racial disparities in incarceration. And so there was a general sense that there was a problem, but people, you know, that's the end of a long process that generates a big disparity in incarceration when you look at who's in prison on a given day. That speaks to you know, policing, even schools and hospitals, what's going on in our communities and the courts as well. And so they really wanted to get under the hood and see what's driving that to be able to direct policy to try and change that outcome. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's very important in this context because policymakers and people who work in government were hungry for it and asked for it.
1: And I want to talk about the specificity of your approach because you were basically proposing a sort of case study when you focus on one particular court, which is really a unique opportunity to look at the system from inside. And so what kind of information did you gain access to uh, and, and the type of data that you used for this analysis?
0: Yeah, so the data that we were able to access, really looking at it in this way, it was unprecedented. And so these are pieces of data that many people in the community have been interested in, but because of various privacy concerns um, and what have you, it's not been made available. And so really having the blessing of the Supreme Judicial Court and the Chief Justice Ralph Gantz really uh, was our champion in this. He was able to basically open the doors to be able to access as much data as available from the court system. So the Massachusetts trial court was our sort of biggest data partner in this. And we got records on uh, 550,000 roughly cases that occurred over a three-year period covering the entire state in the higher and lower courts, the district and superior courts. And so that that access was unprecedented. It would not have been possible without um, Chief Justice Gantz. This is an aside. I just wanted to mention, he actually unfortunately passed just after the report was published. Um, and so it was a big part of his you know, life's work and legacy to try and think about addressing racial disparities in the system. And I'm happy we were able to finish this before he passed, but it was very unfortunate that he passed within a few days. Um, but so that was, I think, the, the, an unprecedented piece of access. And then beyond that, we looked at this trial court data and realized that even though the access was unprecedented, it still had gaps. And so we went to several additional agencies across the state to build on what we had on the sample of cases. So we reached out to the Department of Criminal Justice Information Services, which keeps track of data on sentencing and specifically criminal history. So we could look back even beyond our three year sample and say, has this person been arrested say 10 years ago or um, things like that to look at previous uh, criminal justice involvement. We also got data from the Office of the Commissioner of Probation and we reached out to the Department of Corrections as well to get data on the prison population. Uh, We reached out to actually every single police department in the state of Massachusetts. I think there's over 400 different departments that we reached out to and we got data from some of them but because that's such a fractionalized system where there's no centralized agency that was able to let us look at all these different data sources in a consistent way. We did not include much of that in our report but that's something that we recognize was an important piece of the process, uh, we had less of an ability to sort of get data from them, though, because it's a very fractionalized group of organizations, and the people that we had access to in the courts didn't have as much pull to be able to, you know, sort of lean on people to provide access in that context.
1: And what kind of information is contained in these uh, in these uh, records that you managed to gather together?
0: Yeah, so for each case that we were looking at, we had information that spoke to initial charges. So what people essentially got in trouble for, were arrested for, or in the case of a superior court case, what they were indicted for. And then we also had information on how those cases were adjudicated, were they found guilty and convicted, where their case dismissed, um, and also different kinds of more discretionary outcomes. Some are basically... I say, I think of them as soft probationary outcomes. They have sort of technical legal names, continuance without a finding and pretrial probation as a disposition. But these are situations where essentially you agree to not get in trouble and to follow some basic conditions put down by the court. And then if you're able to succeed then you have your case dismissed at the end of it. And so we had a sort of variety of different outcomes and a little bit more detail than just guilty or not guilty. And that was at the charge level. Beyond that, we also had sentencing information and uh, that you know, spoke to probation and incarceration and other kinds of penalties. We had information on bail and we had demographic information on the people who were included in the sample. So we could see their race, gender, ethnicity and those kinds of things. And then a host of other things actually that we don't spend quite as much time on but we got everything from warrants that were put out for people's arrest to specific court events, you know, was this specific hearing held or was it not held um, and things like that. So it's really everything that they had and were able to make available in an aggregate sense that we were able to look at um, and incorporate into this analysis.
1: And so when you put together this, uh, this really large data sets, okay, could you tell us about the key status facts that emerge and in particular, What can we say about the number of Black and Latinx people uh, involved in these cases compared to their share in the the population?
0: Yeah, of course. So I think one thing that we found, and this is really confirming past knowledge because it's I think pretty well understood is that Black and Latinx people were overrepresented compared to their population in the state. And so if you just look at the overall court caseload, there were more cases involving black and Latinx people than would be expected based on their share of the population. I think there's a conversation about what the appropriate benchmark should be for something like this. And we didn't really uh, need to take a stand on what the appropriate benchmark was, but we did confirm the findings that there was an overrepresentation compared to their baseline in the States. I think it's over twice you know, the representation in the state for Black and Latinx people there. And then beyond that, once you look at, you know, you condition on being in our sample, um, which is, again, one in which people of color are overrepresented, we found substantial disparities in incarceration sentence length. I think that was probably the starkest and most extreme finding. We found that Black and Latinx people got sentences um, that were on average 168 and 148 days longer respectively than their white counterparts. And so this is if you just look at people who are incarcerated and look at the average sentences that they're receiving, the sentences that black and Latinx people are getting are substantially longer as well. And then we dig into a lot of the factors that we think might be you know, mechanisms that generate that large disparity. And we also document other disparities and things like the extent to which people are diverted to some of these more discretionary and less extreme outcomes that I mentioned previously and bail, for example, we saw some um, disparities there, but a lot of our analysis focuses on this very big disparity in incarceration like that we saw.
1: So it seems that these disparities uh, emerge at different steps of the process uh, in the judicial system, right? Can you walk us through these different steps exactly?
0: Yeah, yeah. So this, the, the criminal process is very complicated. And, you know, when I present this uh, I often show a giant flow chart that shows like the dozens and dozens of different decision points that go into generating you know, the population of people who are incarcerated on a specific day. We were able to speak to a few of the key phases and I think I'm gonna highlight a couple that I think were the most impactful. One of the earliest decisions that we thought that we found to be very impactful was just how people are charged. There's many different ways that uh, police officers or prosecutors can choose to charge people for a similar underlying conduct. And so we saw that the type of charges that people were getting were very much an important factor that led to these disparities in sentencing. Another key decision that happens very early on is the decision of whether to indict somebody. And so, indicting somebody basically moves their case into superior courts, which are more serious. A superior court can sentence somebody to prison, and they can sentence somebody to a very long sentence, whereas the district courts, Those handle much of the overall caseload, but it's much of the lower level thing. So they actually cannot sentence somebody to more than two and a half years of incarceration. And that is actually something that I found quite interesting. The same charges can actually be adjudicated sometimes in either court. You know, if it's, for example, something extreme like murder, it has to be in superior court, right? But there's there's a section of cases where there's actually a discretionary choice made about whether you indict somebody or whether you don't. And this can be for the exact same charges and the exact same conduct. Um, and so there is a certain discretionary aspect to this. And we found it was quite impactful. We found that people of color were more likely to be indicted and that of course subjects them to potential sentences that are much longer than the maximum of two and a half years. So that was a key decision-making point there as well. I think the plea bargaining process appears to be quite important And that is something that we wish that we were able to measure more completely, but we don't actually have information on, for example, the plea offers that are made. And so we see that people are being sentenced when they're convicted to longer sentences for people of color, but we don't actually have great information on the negotiation that happens between the defense attorneys and prosecutors where they try and figure out what the actual charges and sentences will be. And the vast majority of cases, I think, this is true nationwide, in addition to in Massachusetts, like 95% plus of case of convictions are obtained through plea bargains and not through actual trials. And so the plea bargaining process is hugely important, but it's also a bit of a black box. That data would have to come from prosecutors. And while we found a little bit of interest in sharing that kind of information, we weren't able to get anything nearly as systematic on sort of the details of that process as we were on the beginning parts, which is the initial charging decisions, which are very well documented by the courts. And then the sentencing part, which happens at the end, um, which is also well documented.
1: What's really interesting in the study is that you can show that the difference in uh, sentence lengths between uh, uh, minorities and and non-minority people actually cannot be explained by other factors such as the the criminal record or severity of charge. Can you tell us more about that and how you come up with this result?
0: I guess one thing I wanted to highlight is, I know in a lot of economic research, that's very much focused on, can we prove whether or not discrimination is what's happening? Or can we sort of control for everything that we think is not race and then find the true race effect? That is not the enterprise that we were engaged in. I think there's a couple of important reasons for that. Discrimination is an important thing to be able to identify. And I think has, you know, qualities that make it something worth studying. And it also informs what kinds of solutions to the disparities you see will be viable, right? If we think it's something to do with statistical discrimination coming from a lack of information, there's certain kinds of interventions that might be viable there that might not be viable if it's something like case-based discrimination. And so I mean to say that that's a very important thing to take into account. But where we were coming from was that question was not going to be central to whether we thought the disparities were worth addressing. right? And so we did not wanna get into the conversation of oh, there's these racial disparities, is it okay? Because it's correlated with other things. That question had already been asked or, and answered and that the people who were policymakers and members of the community came to us and said, we think this is a problem. And so we did not have to really have that kind of conversation to the same extent. We wanted to con- look at these other factors to identify mechanisms to say, what is actually driving these large overall disparities? And so we included a ton of things uh, we went even over and above what was in the case data that we got from the courts and brought in census data to try and think about people's neighborhoods and what's going on there. Um, we went th- to great lengths to collect several data sets to basically increase the number of things we could control for. So, for example, full criminal history was something we were able to bring in, and that was something that we thought was important and sort of got, went to a new agency to be able to add in um, and other factors like that. And so we tried to consider a lot of things and part of the reason we did this was we wanted to look at actual guidance that judges are given for sentencing and saying, how is the guidance that judges are given for sentencing leading to these disparities, right? And so we, we really looked at, you know, judges are told to make decisions based on say the severity of the charge and the type of criminal history that somebody has. And so we think those things should matter but also what is considered severe or not severe, we know as a decision that can be influenced by the kind of people we expect to be subject to those charges. And we actually speak to a little bit of the history of these conversations about how something, for example, like driving while drunk, Um, is handled and spoken about when people are deciding how serious of conduct it is versus something like firearm violence, Um, even though both of those have similar death tolls um, in in the country. They're spoken about very differently and adjudicated very differently. So you wanted to speak to these decisions, not to make a judgment on whether that justifies racial disparity or not more to speak to them as mechanisms that produce the overall racial disparity. And uh, just to end, I think the one thing that we found that mattered more than everything else was again, the initial charging decision. So the type of initial charge that we got we found that that drove a lot of what was going on. And it was specifically when looking at things that carried mandatory minimum incarceration sentences, um, a type of charge that limits the discretion in terms of how long of a sentence a judge can impose. And then weapon and drugs charges as well um, were really types of uh, charges where we saw substantial racial disparities. And not even in those cases, it wasn't even just an incarceration link. We were seeing some disparities related to conviction rates and um, the rate at which you're incarcerated and not just how long as well and so all of those different types of disparities compound and also include this initial disparity we t- highlighted in which people of color are overrepresented in the system as a whole. And so we were able to control for those things. And even after we controlled for everything that was supposed to matter, quote unquote, in these charging decis- or sorry, in these sentencing decisions, there's a substantial uh, amount of the variation that was not explained that we were still seeing racial disparities um, of over a month for um, sentences that people are getting, even after you've taken into account everything that we might think should be relevant.
1: La minute technique. In this podcast, researchers take one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their work. And uh, there's something you highlight in your studies, like the potential challenges behind racial categorization. And I wanted to ask you how uh, you basically address these challenges in determining race for certain cases in your data when they are missing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I will quickly say a couple of things on this. The first thing that I will say is very important in this case is talking to people. Right. So we wanted to say who is actually recording this piece of information and when. There's maybe multiple instances of times when it could be recorded. Where does this come from? So we actually went to court and watched arraignments and watched and observed the clerks who were doing data entry. We also spoke to the research staff at these various agencies to figure out what's going on. We saw that there were inconsistencies across data sets. And so we did some analysis to try and validate which ones were more reliable and made sure we used the best piece of evidence available for every case. And in some cases, we were able to infer things like this organization uses ethnicity, you know, and specifically looking at Hispanic versus not essentially as a race. And so race is always missing when ethnicity is filled in. And so we had to follow up with qualitative work to try and figure out if that's actually what's going on. And we actually did some statistical analysis as well to try and validate to say, imagine we had no race fields but other people are able to guess race using things like the location that the person lives in, their home address, and their name. And we actually ran those statistical analyses as well to come up with predicted races as well to compare to the actual races that we were able to find from across several different data sets, just to make sure that our analysis was not throwing things off because race was central to this. And so that we did as a check and that confirmed that we were thinking about things what we think is a reasonable way. But it was really a multifaceted process of being very careful and using statistics where necessary, but also just talking and observing to people um, to make sure we got it right.
1: And your work as obvious policy relevance. And so I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about the policy implications and uh, of this work and what people were thinking when you presented uh, to different institutions.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this work I think speaks to a lot of different stages of the criminal justice system. And so in the conversations that have come from this analysis, we've spoken to everyone from prosecutors um, and a few different counties to activists, to legislators who actually write the laws and determine many of the penalties that we're dealing with. And there's sort of different pieces of evidence or different pieces of advice and policy implications for each of those. Um, I think the first thing that is my sort of, you know, uh, home in my uh, my favorite uh, policy recommendation in this space is we really have to rethink how we do police stops I think fewer more efficiently done police stops. Are an important factor in this, so we are talking a lot about incarceration disparities, because that was, I think, the thing that animated the initial report and the ask for the report, but the huge majority of the caseload that we're dealing with is for much lower level offenses where people are not going to prison. And we saw a lot of, for example, vehicle offenses where the racial disparities, particularly for Latinx people were large. And these are things where you might not go to jail, but it might make you no longer have access to a driver's license. It might make it challenging for you to get to work or take your kids to school. And these are things that don't have in most cases a direct public safety implication that we're talking about. I think it's important to keep track of, you know, records keeping and those kinds of things, but it's unclear that those things need to be in the criminal justice space at all, Um, while you're talking to judges and police about that instead of someone at the DMV. And so I think just being more judicious with the kinds of stops that we're making and the kinds of things that we are criminalizing and that we need to criminalize, is the first major step in making sure that these racial disparities aren't as impactful, right? It becomes sort of a moot point if we're not criminalizing something, what the disparities would be in that if we were to be adjudicating it through this kind of uh, framework. And so, for example, in the data that we analyzed, this was prior to marijuana legalization. And after our time frame ends, marijuana has then been, then been legalized. And so we can look at racial disparities in marijuana possession arrests, for example, but once you've legalized that and regulated it in other ways that make sure, for example, young people can't easily access it, that the health implications are taken root out and studied, um, et cetera, the racial disparities stop mattering in that context. right? And so my first piece of advice is, we can try and think about how we punish people equally, but there's a lot of things that we don't need to be punishing people for at all. Um, And I try and share that message with everybody that I speak to. Um, And then beyond that, I think there's an implication with respect to how much time people have to think about these things. I think there's good research in the behavioral science and psychology spaces that show that people are more likely to rely on stereotypes and other heuristics when they don't have the time to be working on these cases. The volume of cases that goes through the system is very high. There's no world in which all of these cases could receive a full trial, for example. That is not possible. Um, and you know, defense attorneys uh, will be working. You know, I've seen people who are in our sample of three years have thousands of cases that they're working. Right, um, and so thinking about those kinds of sort of operational logistic things and making sure that we have the resources um, commensurate with the impact, right? That not doing this correctly will have on someone's life, right? If you have a wrongful conviction that can be devastating for your entire life trajectory. And so we should probably give it the time and care that it requires. And so the people aren't relying on these sort of um, short-term mechanisms. And then I think the the last policy implication, and this speaks to um, something that I think was one of the most um, unexpected findings that I saw is even in areas where there doesn't seem to be a lot of discretion or the law is written in such a way as to limit discretion, people find a way to insert discretion. And I think it speaks to the fact that people in the system recognize that sometimes the law isn't doing what they think is the best for our communities um, long term. And so one example that stuck out the most was looking at people who are arrested for drunk driving, which I've mentioned. Uh, People refer to this as OUI, operating under the influence. If you look at people who are facing a a charge for a second offense, OUIs, so where they've been you know, caught for this before and I have, have uh, done it again. That is, a, that is an offense that can carry a mandatory minimum incarceration sentence, right? And so, and it's actually the most commonly charged offense that carries a mandatory minimum sentence. When you look at the people who come in with that as their charge, and then the people who are convicted in cases, so they weren't necessarily convicted of that crime, but that was what they were arrested for, and they were convicted of something only 10% of those people are actually incarcerated at all, right? The vast majority of people who come in with that charge, even though statutorily it could be prosecuted in such a way that there would be a mandatory incarceration sentence, almost none of those people are incarcerated, right? And for comparison, more than half of people who are convicted in cases involving just a general mandatory minimum, right, are incarcerated. And so if you look at mandatory minimums as a whole, more than, you know, more than half of the people who are convicted in those cases are being incarcerated, but this specific charge, which is the most numerous charge that people are seeing over and over, they recognize that maybe that's not the appropriate you know, framework for using this. And so people are being diverted essentially into an alcohol um, and driving education and treatment program where they have options to undergo education and treatment. And if they are able to successfully complete that, they can have their charges dismissed and not be incarcerated, right? And so when you compare that to say, OUI, but instead of drunk driving, it's for drugs. So imagine somebody's doing marijuana or some other kind of drug. Those people are incarcerated when they're convicted 26% of the time. So you're more than two and a half times likely to be incarcerated if you happen to be driving drugs versus driving drunk, right? I don't think there's a good reason for that. I think both of those things are dangerous, but they also both have a, you know, education and public health oriented solution that we could be applying. We're not applying it evenly, right? And then one thing I wanted to highlight is even though people of color are overrepresented in the mandatory minimum charging space, the people who are charged with second offense OUI for alcohol are overwhelmingly white, right? It's over 80% of the people who are being charged with this are white. And we're seeing a lot of leniency and people thinking critically about what other kinds of solutions will address the underlying public safety concern without all of the negative externalities that are being generated by incarceration. And so, My point is not that we should be, you know, coming down harder on those people because it's not fair. My point is that's exactly what we should be doing. And we should be doing that in more situations and in more contexts, right? There's many other types of conduct where we could be thinking more broadly about the way that we treat the issue. And we see that when, you know, even when it's not easy, uh, people come up with ways to do this in the system. Right. We see prosecutors and judges saying we don't think that sending this person to jail is going to solve this problem or make things better. And so they find a way around it, even when the law looks like it should be mandatory. Right. So I think we know how to think this way. We know how to extend this kind of compassion um, and growth framework, but we don't do it evenly. We don't do it consistently for everybody. Right. And so I think that this is the kind of thing that we should be doing uh, in general and in more context. And it's going to be different concerns and you know, for different types of charges, right? The kinds of things you do to interrupt violence, for example, are different than drunk driving, um, like gun violence, for example. But I think there are you know, important uh, solutions that are being tested and that have been shown to be promising for a whole range of types of conduct that have public safety er, implications, but that we could be avoiding um, these kinds of disparities more. Um, and so those are a few of the things that I've thought about and that have come out of my conversations thinking about this analysis.
1: Thank you, and so before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you had any recommendation of a book or movie or anything that you would like to share with our listeners that inspired you.
0: Yeah, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll make two recommendations. One is a book that I liked. It's by Alexis Harris. Um, it is called A Pound of Flesh. And it really is looking at uh, basically the financial implications of being involved in courts for even very low level things and thinking about um, how traffic tickets or violations for driving without a license can balloon and leave people in huge amounts of debt um, as they're not able to uh, make those payments and that leads them further and further into criminal justice involvement and debt. Um, that was something that really highlighted sort of these more bureaucratic things that you're not going to be hearing about in the news and that you're not going to be seeing in the headlines, um, but that can have a huge burden on communities. Um, and I remember seeing that analysis and also looking back and seeing that in Ferguson, um, something like half of the city's, uh, you know, municipal budget was coming from just these kinds of fines and fees that were being generated. That got me interested in the thinking uh, you know, not just about things like police brutality um, and mass incarceration, but the entire broad footprint of the system and how we can be doing policy better, how we can be thinking about raising money and revenue for our services, how we can be thinking about sort of taking care of our people better. Um, and the other thing that I will say is not necessarily a book or a movie, but I would say everybody should go and spend some time in a space that involves like actual criminal justice involved people. And so I mentioned that I'd been to, we went to court to watch things. I learned so much in spending a couple of hours observing what happens in court. Um, and I was shocked you know, by a lot of things. I think a lot of people might not be as happy with the way that our systems are operating and you know, not take these things for granted that we're doing things correctly if they had some more experience looking at these things. And even though I'd been working on criminal justice for a while, I would not actually sat there and watched 20 arraignments happen in a couple of hours and be like, wait, how do people even make any you know decisions that are well informed, or you know how did you know this person came in uh, from jail and met their defense attorney for the first time, who was like asking them questions for two to three minutes to figure out what the case was about before they had you know their freedom determined afterwards, and so that was eye opening for me, and that can be going to courts. Um, I've done ride-alongs with police. I've been to prisons and done tutoring there. I think spending. I think it's easy for us to forget that these things are ha- happening and being done on our behalf as citizens. And so I would implore people to just spend some time, even if it's not for a research project. I think it's usually pretty easy to to observe and know what's being done in your name.
1: Thank you so much, Félix, for this conversation. Really appreciate it.
0: Yes, thank you so much for having me.
1: This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clementine Van in Toronto. Music is by The Count, Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.